It is always a joy to worship the Savior Jesus with you here at First Baptist Walnut Ridge. At least I have joy. Even if it's 900 degrees in here, my goodness, man, it's warm this morning, isn't it? We knocked the thermostats down just a minute ago. Even if it's early in the morning, some of you still rubbing the sleepies out of your eyes. I saw a few yawns and coffee sips just a minute ago. So it's a joy to worship the Lord, isn't it? Amen. But I think part of having that joy is actually knowing what we're singing. Did you pay attention to the hymn that we sang just before I came up here? Hallelujah, what a Savior. It's good to know what you're singing about, isn't it? How many of you, just by show of hands, have heard that word hallelujah before? You've heard the word hallelujah. All right, all right. Now, how many of you, by show of hands, Know what the word hallelujah means. We got a few. Some of you are a little timid. You're like, uh, I'm not going to put you on the spot. All right? I'm not going to ask you and make you define it. How many of you know what the word hallelujah means? All right, good. We got a few. We got a few. It's a Hebrew word. It means praise the Lord or praise Yahweh if it's translated literally. It occurs all throughout the Psalms of the Old Testament. We sing it in many of our songs even today. So when you sing the word hallelujah, do you know what you're singing now? You're singing praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. As I preach to you this morning, I want to remind you of the meaning of another Hebrew word. This word is Messiah. How many of you, by show of hands, have heard that word Messiah before? You've heard that word Messiah. All right, good. good. How many of you would say, yeah, Jake, I haven't just heard the word Messiah, but I know what Messiah means. You know what Messiah means? You just lift up your hand. All right, most of you, most of you. This word Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed one. And it's important to remember this word Messiah this morning as we look at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Because in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we see the first miraculous sign performed by the Messiah, by Jesus himself, when he turned water into wine. So before we read John chapter 2, I want to remind you of the central purpose verse of all of John's gospel. That is, if you boil down the whole book of John to one verse, here's what it's all about. And John himself stated this in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. Everything John wrote down in his gospel, including this first miraculous sign performed by Jesus in John chapter 2, points to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That word Christ that you just heard is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. Both of those words mean the anointed one. This is who Jesus is. 
he is the very anointed of God. So when we read about the miraculous transformation of the water to wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, we need to remember that the miraculous signs of Jesus show that he is the Messiah. The miraculous signs of Jesus show that he is the Messiah. So let's look together in God's word this morning. We're just going to take this miraculous account a section by section from John chapter 2 verse 1 all the way to John chapter 2 verse 12. You'll notice in each section of this story there is an important transitional adverb. The word now that occurs. Let's begin with the now that is found in verses 1 through 4. The Bible says... On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. This first section we're going to talk about in verses 1 through 4 is the wedding. The wedding. The reference to the third day here in verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, is a reference to the timeline that John has set up in the beginning of his gospel. And it's important to note in this story. The initial day that John is referring to can be traced back to verses 29 through 34. It was the day when John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see that in verse 29. The first day after that was in verse 35. That was the day that Andrew and his friend began to follow Jesus. If you got your Bible open, you make a note that there. Verse 35, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. That was the day Andrew began to follow Jesus and brought his brother Peter to follow Jesus. The second day after John the Baptist proclaimed Jesus was the Lamb of God was the day Philip and Nathaniel began to follow Jesus. You see that there in verse 43? The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. So the initial day, John the Baptist preaches, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second day, or the first day after the initial day, you could put it that way, is the day that Andrew followed Jesus. The next day, The second day, but the third, if you're going along this timeline. Isn't it fun to kind of read through the Gospels and have have fun with these timelines? You see, it was the day that Philip and Nathaniel began to follow Jesus. So on the third day, the third day after John the Baptist had proclaimed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we see Jesus and his disciples along with his mother at a wedding. What's interesting is that we don't know whose wedding it was. Or how Jesus, his mother, or his disciples garnered an invitation. 
since Jewish people were known for their local hospitality, it could have been that this was just a customary social invitation and nothing more than that. Maybe people had begun to hear of this Jesus who was a good teacher and they had heard what John had said about him and they wanted Jesus at their wedding. Maybe it was that Jesus and or his mother were friends of the groom or the bride or both. We don't know. What we do know is that the text clearly states in verse 2, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And I want you to understand it was not an accident that Jesus was there that day. However he got an invitation, the father had a plan for him being there. What we also know is that at some point during the celebration, they ran out of wine. Wedding feasts may have lasted up to a week in this time for close friends and immediate family, if not for all the guests who had been invited. So if we are going to interpret this text rigidly, which you could do, it could have been that they ran out of wine on that third day, the first day of a multi-day feast, which would have been a huge social blunder and a pretty major problem. They hadn't provided their invited guests with enough drink for the celebration. Some of you wonderful ladies who help with our church potlucks may understand this pressure a little bit more than the rest of us, right? We invite the Williams Singers to come in April, and man, they come and sing their hearts out. We worship the Lord together, and we look out here and we think, oh man, this is a great group of people. And the more people come in, the ladies that are back in the kitchen are going, oh no. Do we have enough fried chicken? Do we have enough rolls? Somebody go down to Hayes. Do we have enough sweet tea that's made? At this point, we're not sure who all was aware of this problem, but we know that Jesus' mother became aware of it. They were out of wine. This was a big problem. Maybe a wine vendor was too far away for them to go and purchase more. Maybe the family didn't have enough money to purchase more. Whatever the case, they were out and they needed more. And Jesus' mother pointed out the problem to him in verse 3. Jesus' response to her in verse 4 is interesting, isn't it? Men, what does this have to do with me? I want you to understand something. Anytime that Jesus speaks to a woman individually in the Gospel of John... He begins with that word woman. He just he, he does that. It's not a sign of disrespect or that they don't know what they're talking about. It's just a formal way to address someone. Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mother. He's simply saying, woman, I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not here to make wine for weddings. I'm the Messiah. Like, I'm just here as an invited guest. What does that have to do with me? I mean, how many of you, if you showed up to a church potluck as a church guest of First Baptist Walnut Ridge, and a lady from the kitchen came to you and said, hey, we're out of sweet tea. I mean, wouldn't you go, okay, I've been drinking water, like what's the problem here? And they said, aren't aren't you going to do something about it? Like, can you go get more tea bags? Can you get more sugar? Can you help us in the kitchen here make it? I mean... You'd kind of go, how is this my problem? 
Jesus was an invited guest to this wedding feast. He wasn't the one who had provided all of the wine in the first place as the vendor. He wasn't the servant who was pouring it out for everybody to drink. So he says, Mom, how is this my problem? And then he says this in verse 4, which is perhaps the most important thing in his entire response. My hour has not yet come. The hour to which Jesus referred was the time of his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. In the Gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly referred to his hour or the hour as the point of his crucifixion and or the glory that was to follow. He didn't disrespect his mother and she didn't override his divine agenda. What happened at this point in Jesus' ministry is that Jesus set in motion through his miracle that moment of his hour that was to come. This miracle occurring at a wedding, one of the happiest occasions of human social interaction, foreshadowed the joy that was to come later on another third day. People would be severely disappointed when their Savior was crucified on a Roman cross. But they would also later be overcome with abundant joy at the resurrection of their Lord on the third day. This was more than just Jesus performing a party trick to gain popularity. This was not just a mere miracle that showed Jesus had some kind of power. This was a sign. The miraculous signs of Jesus show that He is the Messiah. And this is what brings us to the second section of the story in verses 5 through 7. I want you to notice the now of the water pots. Verse 5 says this, His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. If anybody knew before this point that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, it was Mary. I mean, she'd known for a long time, right? Back all the way some 30 years ago prior to this event when an angel came to her and said, Mary, you are going to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Mary says, well, I've never, I've never known a man. I'm still a virgin. How is that possible? The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of the Most High will come upon you. You will give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. If anybody knew Jesus was the Messiah at this point, it was Mary. And she showed as much when she told the servants simply to do whatever Jesus told them to do. Don't you love that in verse 5? There may have been some more to Jesus and Mary's conversation that isn't recorded here in John chapter 2, but we know this much. Jesus' mom says, there's a problem. They're out of wine. 
And Jesus says, Mom, okay, what in the world does that have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. And Mary turns around and says, whatever he says, just go do it. Again, Mary wasn't overriding his divine agenda. She was simply trusting by faith in the power of Jesus. The now in this section is found right there in verse 6 in relation to the water pots. These containers held a sum total of somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. In these pots would be placed water, clean water. This water would be used to cleanse ceremonially hands, dishes, etc. But there was nothing special about the containers themselves. They most likely weren't the fanciest, the most decorative pots. They perhaps weren't even the same size, which is why we get that range of somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons apiece. They were also empty. But Jesus ordered the servants to fill them up. And they filled them up, the Bible says, to the brim. It was in these ordinary containers that Jesus was going to do something extraordinary. And that's not unlike our lives, is it? We're nothing special, yet Jesus saves us. There is nothing that would set us apart from any other person around us, yet Jesus bestows his love upon us in a special and profound way. The Apostle Paul would write later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. There was nothing fancy or special about these water pots. They didn't have some kind of miraculous power of transforming whatever was placed in, in them into something else. But yet, in these water pots, Jesus would perform a great miracle. This miracle was a sign. And this sign would show that Jesus is the Messiah. Now I want you to look with me at verses 8 and 9. You'll see the next now that refers to the water. Verse 8 says, And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Here's where we begin to see something incredible taking place in the text. Remember, Jesus had told the servants, you fill these water pots up and they filled them up to the brim. What had they put in the water pots? This is a simple question. You can respond. What did they put in the water pots? Water. What do you think they expected to get out of the water pots? Water. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. You put water into a pot, you're going to get water out of a pot, right? And Jesus says to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast on these occasions 
would often taste test everything before it went out to everybody, including breads, meats, fruits, olive oil, and wine. He would do that to ensure that it actually was appropriate to serve to everyone. In this day and time, without refrigeration and some of the modern technologies we have when it comes to cooking and storing food and serving food, it was important not to serve something that was spoiled or rotten or didn't taste good. After all, this is a wedding feast. They wanted people to be able to celebrate, not throw up everywhere, right? And so the master of the feast would have had the responsibility of taste testing this wine before it was served. By the way, if you're ever wondering if we have a master of the feast here at First Baptist Walnut Ridge, I get to taste test everything in the kitchen. That's part of the job responsibilities that I wrote in for myself as pastor, all right? But if it's bad, don't, don't let me taste test it. You taste test it first. Just give me the good stuff. Banana pudding, I'll eat that first, then we'll set it out on the dessert table, all right? This master of the feast tasted, what does the text say? The water. You see that in verse 9? He tasted the water that was made wine. And he didn't know where it came from. Now, I want you to think of this from the servant's perspective. We don't know what all Jesus did to turn water into wine. We don't even know if they got to be in the room when he transformed water into wine. We don't know if Jesus touched it. We don't know if Jesus just prayed silently and the, the Father transformed it. We don't know how this miracle took place. The servants just knew those water pots were empty. They'd been filled up with water, and now they were drawing water out and taking it to the master of the feast to go and taste it. I mean, they listened to Mary to their credit. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. They did it. But could you imagine as a servant who may not have known who Jesus was, who may not have ever seen Jesus perform a miracle, especially because later on we find out this was the first of the miraculous signs that he did to manifest his glory? Could you imagine being the servant Drawing the water out and taking it to the master of the feast because you had run out of wine. The master of the feast probably knew it at this point. And as he goes to drink it, he goes, uh, Hey, I, I, I'm going to call somebody over here because I can't believe this. He calls the bridegroom over. What do you think the servant's thinking at that point? I think I need to update my resume on Indeed. I'm going to be looking for another place to serve in Cana of Galilee, right? Jesus took this water and made it into wine. And this is what brings us to the fourth section of this story. You see the now in verse 10 about the wine itself. Here's what the master said. He called the bridegroom to him so he could get the attention of everybody there at the, at the party, at the feast. Verse 10, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples 
believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Maybe because everybody had heard about the wine Jesus had made and wanted some. This story is simply incredible. What began as a perhaps social taboo in this day and time, running out of wine at a wedding feast, now ironically twisted, not to bring shame to the family, to the bride, to the groom, to the servants, but to bring honor to them. Jesus took what would have been a severe disappointment and turned it into a great point of celebration and joy. According to the master of the wedding feast, it was custom to serve the best wine first so that after people had drunk, they could serve the cheaper stuff later on. Unless you think that uh, it, people were drunk at this point and couldn't taste anything, keep in mind, they tasted this wine. They knew how good it was. The point of this passage is not that Jesus served wine at a wedding so you can drink Jack at your house when nobody's watching. Nor is the point of this passage to talk about whether or not we should drink. The point of this passage is to show who Jesus is. And to show what he'd come to do. Just like at the wedding feast, this master said, Everybody serves the best stuff first and then they bring in the stuff that's not as good. Jesus showed up on the scene, and even as great as this first miracle was, did you know what verse 11 said about this sign? Was this the greatest sign that Jesus performed? No. What was this sign? Verse 11 says, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. As wonderful as it would have been to have been there at the wedding and been one of the servants to see this miraculous event take place, there was something even better that would come in the future. As wonderful as it would have been to taste wine from the creator of the universe, Jesus probably knows how to make the best stuff out there, don't you agree? There was something better yet come and this is the point that John is making as he tells this story of this first miraculous sign Jesus has brought the best but he brings it in last it is opposite of the ways of this world the world offers you the best stuff on the front end and then they give you the fine print, right? You take out a loan or apply for a new credit card. Oh man, I got what I wanted. I'm going to be paying for this for the next 85 years of my life. Right? You get a new job. They, man, they put their best foot forward as a company. They ought to. They tell you about benefits and how great and rewarding the work's going to be. And then you show up your second week and you find out, oh, that's what other responsibilities as assigned means. 
I mean, that's just how things go. It's like the world offers us the best and we find out the worst pretty soon afterwards. It's the same way Satan works himself, isn't it? Tempting us, luring us with something that looks good, that's appealing to the eyes. That if we think we could just grab hold of it, it would bring us satisfaction. But even though it looks good, there's nothing but rot and decay and death when we grab hold of it. The devil gives the best first and the worst last. But the Lord saves the best for last. This is what Jesus was doing. He wasn't just turning water into wine. He was pointing to the fact that he had come to do something people had waited years for. You heard Bryson talking to the kids in children's sermon about their studies through the Old Testament on Sunday mornings during their children's worship time. And he referred to the Old Testament as sometimes being boring. It's not if we read it the right way. But even those of us who know how to read it the right way sometimes can get weighted down with details. All of the Old Testament pointed towards the Messiah who was to come. These Jewish people in Cana of Galilee had waited all of their lives. Their families had waited for generations, for centuries, for the Messiah to come. And now he was here. Adrian Rogers, when preaching about the miracles of Jesus, put it this way. Believe in the miracles, but trust in Jesus. Jesus had not just come so that people at a wedding who had run out of wine could taste something better than they had ever tasted before with their mouths. Jesus had come so that parched souls could be quenched by the blood of his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus had come to provide the needed nourishment for souls that had been waiting forever for the Messiah to appear. And when Jesus walked on the scene and did this beginning of signs, he manifested his glory. You see that in verse 11? He manifested his glory. And I want you to note something very important His disciples believed in Him. They didn't just go, oh wow, we believe in the wine. Oh wow, look what Jesus did in these water pots. Look what Jesus did with this water. Have you tasted this stuff? They stood back and marveled at the one who performed this miraculous sign. And this is the point Of all of Jesus' miracles. The miraculous signs of Jesus show us that he is the Messiah. And in our day and time. People have a tendency to do one of two things. With the miraculous signs of Jesus. They either find them all over the place. They make up things that Jesus has done. And live their lives as if Jesus is turning water into wine everywhere he goes. 
Folks, one time in the New Testament we have recorded that Jesus did that. It's a miracle. By definition, it doesn't normally happen. It's a supernatural event by the hand of God Almighty. Or people do this with miracles. Well, they don't ever happen. In fact, when we read the New Testament accounts, I'm not sure if they ever did happen. Man, I'll keep living my life with this ailment, this sickness, and this problem in my family, this problem in my life. If Jesus is a miracle worker, what good is he doing for me? That idea couldn't be more wrong either. Jesus has power to do anything and everything. But I want you to understand something. Jesus hasn't just come so that you could believe in miracles. He has come so that you could trust in Him. Here's what I want to ask you this morning. Are you just looking for God to do something good in your life? Or are you looking for God Himself to show up in your life? And to transform you from the inside out? Jesus didn't come to turn water into wine. Jesus came to shed His blood on the cross for our sins. So that we could be forgiven of our sins and experience eternal life in His name. The people there at the wedding feast that day, if they left after having drunk in the wine that Jesus had miraculously transformed from water in these pots. And just went, wow, that's the best tasting stuff I've ever put on my lips. They would have missed the point. There are many people who go through this life and they keep wondering, what can Jesus do for me? What great thing can I experience? But they miss Jesus himself. So here's my question for you as I close today. The miraculous signs of Jesus show us that He is the Messiah. Do you trust in Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? I'm not asking you what problem is there in your life and you, just, you need God to do something great and incredible. He can. I'm asking you if you trust in Jesus Himself. And the fact that He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. That He is the Son of God, God in human flesh, who came to this earth to reveal to us the glory of the Father in heaven. Believe in miracles, but trust in Jesus. Are you seeking Jesus just for what He can do for you? Or are you going to follow Jesus because of who He is?